thank you very much for coming to Hudson Institute. Uh, thank you for attending, and I want to thank our C-SPAN audience, uh, the panel that we're conducting today. First of all, um, I, uh, Representative Pompeo, Mike Pompeo, will not be able to make it this afternoon as, uh, as we had uh, announced yesterday on the spur of the moment. He very much wanted to be here. They're going to be voting today. He thought he'd be able to get out earlier, but they're going to be voting today, uh, including on, uh, on, on uh, Iran issues. Uh, and as many of you may know, Representative Pompeo, along with Representative Roxham, and uh, Senator Tom Cotton, whom we had uh, a few weeks ago here now. These are the lead advocates uh, for congressional review on the secret side deals between, uh, between Iran and the IAEA. Uh, so even, if, uh, <laughs> even though Representative Pompeo cannot be here, I hope you will follow uh, what he's doing, what uh, Representative Roxham and Senator Cotton are doing. And I believe that this afternoon's panel, we have uh, a fantastic panel um, fantastic panel led by uh, David Albright, who's been to Hudson before, uh, the president of the um, uh, Institute for Science and International Security. Um, Mr. Albright has been, uh, the, the uh, analysis that uh, his organization, ISIS, has been providing on the, um, on, the Iran, on the Iran deal, as well as different things about the Iranian nuclear facilities, are, are invaluable. Uh, and I, I also recommend that you, uh, that you follow what, uh, what ISIS nuclear is doing. Um, so thank you very much again, David, for, for being you. with us here again. Um, to his left is Omri Sarin, um, and Omri is the Managing Director of Press and Strategy for the Israel Project. And I also need to highly recommend Omri's work, which has, uh, Omri has been taking up a lot of the um, political and policy matters regarding, uh, regarding both the Iran deal and the Iran debate unfolding here in Washington, and it's a real privilege to have Omri here. This is his first time at Hudson, I believe, and thanks very much, Omri, for being here. Thank you. To his left is uh, uh, my uh, Hudson colleague, a Hudson Institute uh, senior fellow, Michael Duran, uh, and it's always a pleasure to sit on the same panel with Mike, and um, Mike will be taking up today, he'll be taking up some of the broader implications of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, especially how it relates to, um, especially how it relates to American strategy in the Middle East and what it looks like in the, uh, what that deal and what the ramifications and consequences of that deal look like in the broader <laughs> Middle East. So it's really an exceptional panel. Uh, I, uh, I look forward to learning a lot from it, and, uh, and I hope you do too. And um, right now, David, if, if, if you would start, that would be terrific. Okay. Well, thank you very much. And I uh, must confess, this is my first day back in Washington officially <laughs> since the end of May. So I've, I've back. missed nice much of the uh, personal combat that's been going on <laughs> on this agreement. Uh, I must say, my my institute and I are neutral on this on this deal. We we were deeply involved in in developing provisions in the deal, red teaming provisions. I mean, we work closely with some negotiators in the agreement. Um, we I, some have of the negotiators have said some of the provisions. Or we share it. We sh our name is on it. We share it with other p other governments or groups. But our our name is on several of these provisions, and so. I, but at the same time, when we've assessed the Luzon deal and also the final deal, we see several weaknesses in the deal. And I think we decided that in order to do objective, nonpartisan analysis, that we would not take sides in this debate. And so. Even though I was in Europe, I have done nothing else but assess this deal for the last two months, and we've put out probably 10 to 15 reports on provisions of the deal, which I would recommend 
um, if you're interested. Um, it is very complicated. It has many strengths. It has many weaknesses. One of the, the, the issue today is, order, is over the adequacy of the, of the IA-Iran uh, Parchin deal to try to solve the problem of access um, and to contribute to solving the problems associated with determining um, the verification of the allegations that Iran had a nuclear weapons program in the past. And then to do that in the context that it's the implementation period of the agreement that's, that we're, that's going to happen over the fall and winter. And is that verification effort by the IA going to go well? Is it going to strengthen the verification of, of, the, of, the, of the final deal? Or is it going to create precedence and, and weaken the verification? And what I'd like to do is just quickly um, actually summarize a report we'll either issue today or, or on Monday um, on this Parchin agreement and, and also some general, some general issues around Parchin and satellite imagery analysis of the site. Um, I think it's very clear that the IAS has reported regularly that the modifications at the Parchin site have undermined their ability to do effective verification. I mean, that's, that's the starting point, is that large amounts of modifications, the IA doesn't know what's taken place, but that their, their analysis from satellite imagery is that it's, 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 uh, it's problematic for verification. Now, I would argue, and I will, that this Iran IA Parchin deal has further complicated the verification of that site. Um, it's not a public agreement. I worked on, we worked intensively on Iran since 2002, and, I, and I've worked on many countries, Iraq, South Africa, worked with the IA uh, inspectors in Iraq in the 90s. Um, we've also published extensively about other countries and, and, and used IA data. The IA is a very secretive organization. Its mandate requires secrecy, but in the Iran case, it has not been secret. It's been pretty transparent. Iran has complained about that bitterly for years. It's saying the IA is leaking confidential information. I think that the IA could make this Iran IA deal public, particularly could release it to the member states, and it would actually be, that would be consistent with, with what they've been doing on Iran. So I think the, the secrecy of it raises, raises questions that do need to be addressed. And, and, it, and also, in my experience with the IA, that they do excessively uh, classify, if I can use a U.S. term, that they, that they'll, and they'll do it for all the same reasons. It may not be, have nothing to do with the legitimate ones, proprietary information, security information. It can hide embarrassing information. I would argue that in this case, it's a little bit embarrassing what this Parchin deal has. And, and I think you've all probably had a chance to, to see the details of it. Um, the Associated Press went to, to pretty great lengths to try to get a draft of it. They confirmed that was a draft. They then confirmed, at least they told me, I think they reported that the final deal isn't that different from the draft. And what you have is, is the... Um, situation where there'll be videotaping of, of, of the lo potential locations where sampling would take place. Then the IA would direct the Iranians to take the samples. And that's not the normal way to do things. If I could give the example in Iran of Kalai Electric, a secret centrifuge research and development facility that Iran denied was such a thing, 
um, the IA got access, and what, what it brought in a very top-level centrifuge expert with that access who looked around. And, and, and when they did the sampling finally, they didn't find this, any trace of enriched uranium in the areas that had been heavily modified. But in a, another, a secondary building, they found in a ventilation duct, which had not been modified, they found traces of enriched uranium. And what it is is you need the eyes and the brain to look where to sample. And I, I brought an example of sampling in North Korea. I, I, I can't show it. I mean, it's, it's, this is a, actually a document, maybe afterward, where they sampled in the Yongbyon reprocessing plant in the early 90s in, in North Korea. And, and there, there, North Korea didn't expect environmental sampling. It was, it was a highly classified method that was unclassified as a result of, of the Iraq War in 91 and the idea to strengthen the IA. So they deployed it. And you can see in the sampling, they're looking you know, behind this box. You know, look, in this case, again, North Korea didn't expect it. Look for where it's dusty. You know, and the idea, it's not been disturbed. In the case of Parchin, it would be look for where the paint doesn't look solid. And so that's very hard to do with a video camera. So I think the video camera opens up additional methods of deceiving the IA, and it's not the normal way they've been doing it. And so I think that's a, that's a problem. Um, the other is, is really precedence, where the IA isn't getting access to the physical locations where samples are being taken. And the deal, as reported by AP, says that, that Amano, the Director General, and his, his, direct, his Deputy De Director General um, on safeguards can go as a courtesy visit. Now, we, in my own work with, with the AP, and I, and I talked to the journalist involved in this, he believes that the deal he was shown and he was able to transcribe, I mean, it has some errors in it, uh, but they're at the <laughs> margins, and that he, he has reported that that is an accurate rendition. In congressional testimony, I know that U.S. officials have testified, and I've heard from, um, won't say who, sometimes it's congress congressmen have said that the sampling would be done and then the IA access would follow. And, and so the access is coming at a point where it's not as useful. Politically, access is important, but, but again, you want it to drive the inspection effort and the environmental sampling effort not be done at the end of the process. And so, again, what happens with other sites? What happens if there's another question at Parchin? There's other sites the IA is asked to visit associated with this, the verification of the possible military dimensions um, of, of Iran's program. And are they going to be, in a sense, subject to these kind of rules when they go there? Um, another reason you want access is to talk to, to the scientists and engineers involved. Now, whether that's going to happen, I don't know. I mean, there's a second secret dealer, and, and, and in IA terminology, these are called confidential arrangements. I mean, yeah. I, I, some people object to the word secrecy, but I, I, to me, it's all the same. I mean, it's, but, it, but technically, it's a confidential agreement. And, um, but will the IA be able to do its job, which is to come to closure on, on its verification of Iran's past military activities by December 15th? And I think this agreement on Parchin is, is, is weakening that effort. Um, now in the broader term, broader scheme, um, with the, the long-term agreement, you have to ask whether this is setting up precedence for that. 
I think, I think legally with the additional protocol, you could argue that it's not. But Iran has violated safeguards agreements many times. It's pushed the envelope. And so let's say you go out and there's a suspect site. The IA has to go there. The clock starts ticking on this access provision of 24 days. Iran says, no, you can't have access, but you, we can do the video monitoring and we'll take the samples. And what's going to happen? And I would argue and worry, actually, that there's some countries in Europe who are going to be having heavy investments in Iran. And, and, and Iran is going to be appealing to them to say, look, this worked in the Parchin case. You accepted it. You supported it publicly. Why can't it work here? Do you really want to snap back inspection or snap back sanctions over something that's proven or was as acceptable in a highly controversial case like Parchin? And I would, I would worry that, that the Europeans may not stick with the United States. I think the U.S. will vote to snap back. But I think there's worry the United States, the others may not. Certainly, you can't count on Russia and China. So you just need one of the three to say, ah, maybe, maybe we're not going to go with this. So I think it's also in the long term, it's a problem. And then finally, we want the IA to be as strong as it can be. I mean, it can be incredibly strong. In North Korea, they nailed the North Koreans to the wall with environmental sampling and other, other evidence to say they had an undeclared, had undeclared production of plutonium and, and separation of plutonium. They didn't know how much, but they had them cold. There have been other cases where they've done that. They called them a Kali electric, uh, despite modification. But Iran's gotten better at modification. It's certainly learned. And I think that we can't, ca I think the Kali electric example actually proves the case that you have to worry more about Parchin. It doesn't prove the case that the IA will find it no matter what. That the, the Iranians have learned and that they are probably much better at modification and undermining the IA than before. And so you want to make sure that the IA goes into this long-term agreement as strong as possible. It does address uh, or satisfy the concerns over the possible military dimensions uh, of Iran's program. And we get closure on that. And that, and that we, in a sense, march into this agreement where the IA has, has as much credibility as possible. I worry that the way it's going is they're going to have reduced credibility, and that's going to give an advantage to Iran that's going to come back to haunt us. David, thank you very much. That was a terrific introduction. Uh, and I mean, one of the questions I definitely want to come back to um, is regarding the IAEA's credibility and, and how this is being, how this might be affected by that. But one thing I just wanted to, uh, I just wanted to check before we uh, went on to Omri. When you were saying that um, the draft that the AP published, they checked that with, you were saying the uh, IAEA verified that that was close to that, or, or, or? I don't know. They no, they, I, they went to member states. I mean, this is this this is how this works. I mean, it's it, the IA people. Well, let me not let me not put words in AP. They have okay. sources. They're based in Vienna, and that they went to sources to verify. Okay. Um, and one can imagine too that the well. Let me just end it there. I don't okay. want to take any more time. Okay. That, that story. That story was sourced to. Uh, Officials from member states, specifically. That this, the AP story okay. was sourced to officials. I, I just, from I just states. wanted to check that. Yeah. Thanks, thank you, uh, Omri. If you would like to, uh, if, yeah. if you would like to pick up and, uh, I mean, fill out some of the, you know. Sure. Uh, I think one of the, in addition to the policy environment and especially the geopolitical environment, the verification regime, 
it's uh, in, important to understand the dynamics that have emerged here in town over the last month, two months, certainly, I mean, before that, this debate has been shaping up for several years. But really, after the announcement of the JCPOA in the middle of July, you saw a particular kind of debate shape up here in town. And it has a bunch, it has a range of dimensions that have to do with intersections between policy and politics, frustration on the Hill. Uh, but the one of the overarching dynamics, and this really does begin to bite when we talk about the side deals, is the administration is operating, at least in as much as they operate on the Hill, in an environment in which they've lost the benefit of the doubt with many lawmakers, both Republican lawmakers and Democratic lawmakers. And that comes from a number of places. It comes from frustration by lawmakers who believe that they were uh, led, that they were essentially had their chains pulled for several years, for several years, of course, administration officials would go to the Hill and they would testify that if only were they to be given breathing room for negotiations, they would bring home a deal that, that robustly resolved the past possible military dimensions of Iran's program, that would lead to the shuttering of Fordo, that would lead to the dismantlement of centrifuges, that would lead very, very uh, pointedly to anytime, anywhere inspections. And members feel betrayed. They feel they're saying openly that had they known back then that this would be the deal now, they would have pursued alternative legislative paths, including most prominently sanctions legislation. So that's one place in which the uh, one reason that the administration has lost the benefit of the doubt. Another reason is uh, what members perceive to be simple dishonesty. Uh, they believe that the administration has repeatedly politicized intelligence as far as Iranian cheating over the course of the JPOA, the interim joint plan of action. They believe that the administration is looking the other way on Iranian sanctions busting of UN <laughs> sanctions. They believe that they're not getting the information, that both the United Nations panel, which was supposed to monitor compliance, and uh, various members of Congress are not getting the information that they deserve. And of course, this has recently come to a head in just the last couple of days in the policy conversation when it comes to the, to the politicization of intelligence that has to do with ISIS. But that's also another thing that's in the air, which is to say they just don't trust the administration to uh, give them accurate information. And then, of course, the third reason why they're operating in an environment of distrust is this specific debate over failing to transmit to lawmakers the side deals, the secret side deals between the IAEA and Iran. And again, secret side deals is a loaded term. It's a term that's used by uh, detractors and opponents of the deal, but it's, there was a moment, uh, it would have been two weeks ago, three weeks ago, there was a State Department briefing at which an AP reporter finally got frustrated with the administration and said, can we stipulate that a deal that's classified we can call secret and a deal that's parallel we can call side, right? And that kind of ended the debate about uh, whether they're secret side deals, but the other side prefers not to call them secret side deals and in fact uses lines like, it's not secret, this is just the way that adults do business. Now, saying that to a lawmaker when they say that there's a secret side deal is also not a productive way to rebuild trust. That has occurred on a number of occasions. But this specific issue, uh, it sh takes place in a much broader environment. And I don't choose your metaphor, underlines, highlights, puts an exclamation point at the end of deep, deep, deep distrust on the Hill toward the administration, which is one of the reasons why it has legs, why this idea of the secret side deals has legs. The other, that's the political reason. 
the kind of public affairs reason, or what we would call the communications reason. You know, if you quickly divide the town, politics, policy, public affairs. Politics is distrust on the Hill. The public affairs reason has to do with how the administration approached messaging on this issue. So uh, the administration does polling. Both sides on this debate do a ton of polling. And both sides very, very early saw the same three things popping up. One was uh, the importance of uh, science and expertise, which is why the administration never missed an opportunity, especially during the last few months of the negotiations, to emphasize that scientists agree with them. Uh, this kind of reached a point that caused a lot of people to smirk. Secretary of Energy Moniz, uh, during the Vienna talks, uh, went to, I want Portugal or Spain, somewhere in Iberia, for an award, and he came back and, the picture, and then he tweet-picked a picture, and it's now back to work to lock in an agreement based on hard science, right? Just anywhere that they could insert the term, they inserted it because they saw that it uh, boosted public popularity. The second thing that both sides saw was how you describe the agreement really matters. The administration discovered very early that if you describe the agreement as Iran agrees never to construct a nuclear weapon, they saw the same thing we saw, which is an eight to 10 point bump in approval. They then, by the way, took that wording and started inserting it into their own polls or into the polls of validators in order to boost the numbers. That was the second thing. But the third thing that both sides saw was that voters overwhelmingly dislike Iran. Iran has the lowest favorability of most Middle East actors, highest unfavorability. But the reason they do it, the reason that the, what causes that dislike is distrust. So you ask people, why should the US stand in opposition to Iran? It's a standard kind of wording that we use, and they cite all sorts of things. Iran is dedicated to the destruction of the US, destruction of our allies. Uh, Iran stones rape victims for adultery. Iran hangs gays from cranes. But what's underneath that is distrust. They don't trust Iran not to do those things, which is why you saw the administration develop the talking point that this deal is not built on trust. And if you go back to their uh, materials, that develops very, very, very early because they were seeing the same things we were seeing, which is distrust is potentially toxic to support of negotiations with Iran. The side deals agreement, in the same way that in a political dimension, reinforces pre-existing distrust among lawmakers, in a public affairs dimension, reinforces public distrust. The reason that this is so toxic in terms of the White House's public affairs campaign is because it very, very, very precisely casts a spotlight on something that they very much do not want to play with, which is distrust of Iran. And now there's the policy implications. Uh, David talked a lot about this in a greater depth, but one thing that uh, I think it's important to note is that it's not just the policy community that's concerned about the Parchin, the Parchin arrangement becoming a precedent. The arrangement, of course, is videotaping, uh, allowing the Iranians to control, the, to take their own samples and then hand them over to the agency, and uh, negotiating with the Iranians on a limited number of samples that will be taken from a limited number of places. Uh, Congressman Royce sent a letter to Secretary Kerry in which he also discussed his worry that this would become a precedent. And he cited specifically one of the paragraphs in Annex 1 of the JCPOA, somewhere in the 70s, forgive me, I should know this actually, but 71 or 77, that talks about alternative arrangements 
that the Iranians are allowed to offer when the agency requests access. And Representative Royce asked Secretary, told Secretary Kerry, I worry that this will become a precedent. So you have this side deals issue playing out really across everything that uh, counts in town here, politics, policy, and public affairs. And in the last 48 hours, that has now become a legislative issue, or at least an issue uh, in the battle between Congress and the President over the arrangement. So there's been a lot of talk on the Hill, both among Democrats and Republicans, uh, but in the context of this strategy, it's largely a Republican strategy, that the so-called Corker clock, the 60-day clock during which Congress has the right to review the JCPOA and if they feel so moved to pass a resolution of disapproval, that that clock hasn't started. The administration and, frankly, leadership in the Senate believe, uh, have stated that it started when the administration transmitted uh, a number of documents relevant to their disclosure obligations. Some of those have been leaked. Some of those haven't. Those involve things like the U.S.'s collapse on, on PMDs, involves arrangements, involves uh, why the intelligence community believes that that collapse is justified. So we know the content of a number of these documents. They were transmitted uh, immediately. They were transmitted within a couple days of getting back from Vienna. The clock, according to this reading, ends on September 17th, which is the last day Congress would have to pass a resolution of disapproval. There are many people who are now claiming that because of the non-transmission of the IAEA side deals, that clock hasn't started. There was until the last 48 hours no real recourse for those people. They could complain. They could say it was illegal. There wasn't much they could do. On Tuesday, D.C. District Court ruled for the first time ever, this was in the context of an Obamacare case, that injury that's done to Congress's Article I prerogatives is in fact something that can be litigated. In more technical terms, they granted standing to the House to uh, pursue claims of injury against the president. That created the possibility, this has now been discussed uh, by several legal scholars, but it's being written about broadly. Uh, but the main one is a Washington Post legal blogger, uh, Eugene Kontronovich. And he has taken this, he's now written two articles that says that, in fact, the injury done to Congress's Article I prerogatives does constitute something that can be litigated. He published his first analysis of this yesterday just afternoon. At roughly the same time, and I mean within 15 minutes, Politico posted an article uh, with a statement from Speaker Boehner saying that based on the new ruling, i.e. the finding that Congress has standing to pursue litigation, uh, he may well sue President Obama or the House may well sue President Obama over the non-transmission of documents. Now, the reasoning is actually a little bit subtle. The reasoning is that the Corker clock never started, which means Congress never had the ability to weigh in at all. So it's not your usual claim that it's illegal to waive sanctions. But if that occurs, then it would obviously change the policy, it would radically change the policy environment. For instance, one of the things that the Iranians are counting on is a stable regulatory environment that would encourage companies to enter. It's difficult to see how companies could enter in a political environment in which there's bipartisan opposition in both chambers of Congress to the deal and a legal environment that is uncertain. And I think on that point, we'll Omri, thanks. That's fantastic. Um, just very quickly, do you know, I mean, if, that, if um, Speaker of the House Boehner, if he'd been um, moving on that before, before the Post 
before the post piece? Is this something that they were talking about before? So there was there were, there were definitely discussions at the beginning of the week and beforehand about a possible litigation strategy, but they usually ended with the idea that Congress would not be able to find a way to have standing uh, and it would just get bounced out of court. Now, if you read the political article, it specifically cites the reasoning behind this new uh, district court finding. But so were they all waiting for the for this decision to come down? Are they saying this might or I mean, surprise? I, I think they've been looking for ways to enforce what they consider to be their prerogatives. Because remember, one of the weird things about this, about the kind of the politics around the Corker-Cardin debate and the side deal specifically that we're discussing today is not meeting the Corker-Cardin requirements, which is to say not turning over all of the documents that are relevant to the deal, is disobeying Congress's prerogatives on a piece of legislation about Congress's prerogatives, right? It's not just not enforcing legislation. It's not enforcing legislation that's specifically about enforcing legislation uh, and that was passed by enormous majorities, 98 to 1 in the Senate, signed by the President, veto-proof majorities. And so I think that there were, I think there were discussions about how to enforce Congress's prerogatives that were ongoing. Certainly there were discussions on Wednesday before the Washington Post piece came out. But the Washington Post piece provided a rationale, or at least outlined a rationale that right, had not existed without, yeah. I mean, without being grandiose about this in the history of the republic. Right. This is a new thing. Very interesting. Thanks, Omri. That was terrific. Uh, Mike, if you can, uh, if you can uh, round us off and, and give us the even larger picture that we already have here. Sure. Uh, Omri just said um, um, it's the first time in the history of the republic, but it reminds me that uh, de Tocqueville said in the 19th century that any issue of uh, significance in American politics eventually finds its way into the courts. And that, that's, the kind of, that's the kind of prediction, that uh, political analysis, that I would like to, uh, uh, to produce, something that remains true forever. Um, <laughs> the, uh, uh, the, the interesting thing, I, 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 I love... someone has tweeted that. I love... I love uh, uh, David Albright's analysis. I, I said to him beforehand, before we came in, that there's sort of two kinds of personalities um, in the world, the hedgehogs and foxes, I think. And um, uh, he's, he's a fox. He, you know, he, he sees complexity. He likes to talk about complexity. And I like to lump things together and make them uh, very simple. So I'm going to simplify what he said um, and, and, and turn it into a crudely political statement. <laughs> and say that the, the administration caved on uh, in serious inspections with, rega with regard to the possible military dimensions of the, um, of the Iranian program. Um, and uh, the question is, why did they cave, and how, what, what does it mean? What do these secret side deals mean, or how come adults are doing business in this, uh, in this manner? Um, and, I, and for me, this whole question of the, the secret side deals um, epitomizes the entire approach uh, to the to the nuclear question, or you can see uh, you can see uh, embedded in this or reflected in this the the um, the motives and the approach of the administration to the whole thing. And let me that's a general statement. Let me give you the specifics. Um, uh, one of the fascinating, or a lot of people are saying about the administration when they see things like this. Uh, when they've caved on what we might call the more coercive measures of the of the agreement, so uh, the uh, inspections and verification and snapback and and so on. When you look closely um, at these mechanisms, they they evaporate. Um, our colleagues here at Hudson, uh, Hillel Fradkin and 
um, and Scooter Libby did a very good analysis of the so-called uh, 23 days that uh, um, that uh, uh, that the Iranians um, have in order to um, in order to uh, uh, um, in, in order to uh, oppose any op in, any any effort to inspect a suspect site. And under their analysis, which I think is very convincing, the 23 days quickly becomes many, 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 many months, uh, uh, possibly even longer, because of the inability to bring this process uh, to an end at any point and, and to actually coerce the um, Iranians into getting what you want. Um, and you, as, as David sort of suggested, at, at a certain point you find yourself, when you're pushing up against the Iranians, the only option you have is the... Um, uh, for lack of a better word, the nuclear option of blowing up the whole deal in order to get what you, um, uh, what you want from them. So it isn't really a very effective uh, mechanism. Now, when, when people look at this, at the way that the administration has caved on these coercive measures, um, there's a tendency to say that, um, that we were bamboozled, that the Iranians are master negotiators, they play chess, we play checkers, we're just you know, small-town American simpletons, and they live in this complex Middle Eastern environment and so on. Um, but actually, the people running our government are more clever than that. Uh, they're not small-town simpletons, and uh, um, they know what they're doing. Uh, they are uh, presenting uh, uh, what is actually one kind of agreement as another kind of agreement. Uh, because as, as, as Omri has told us, they've done, uh, and as I'm sure he's correct, They've done extensive polling of the American people, uh, and they found out that the American people don't trust the Iranians, um, and they don't want um, uh, a U.S. strategy that is based on trusting the, the Iranians. Um, but the fact of the matter is, um, the president decided uh, almost from the moment he got into office, possibly even before he got into office, uh, that we need the Iranians as a partner in the Middle East. And the logic is, is absolutely simple. The, president, the most important decision that the president made about the Middle East, about Iran, um, was one he made when he was campaigning, and that is that he was going to pull the United States back from the region. The minute you say you want to pull the United States back from the region, then you are done, you are done uh, a, a, as, a, uh, a, as the leader of a serious policy designed to contain Iran in the region. Uh, the, only, uh, the only way then to, to, uh, to affect that pullback is to come to some kind of accommodation with the Iranians. And the biggest problem you have in terms of coming to an accommodation with the Iranians is their nuclear program. So they needed a way to put the nuclear question off to one side. Well, they got down to the serious business of, uh, of aligning with the Iranians against ISIS and other... Uh, that's, that's the bad ISIS, not the good ISIS that David, uh, <laughs> that David runs, against ISIS and other, um, uh, and other actors. Um, and so that's what this agreement, in my view, is really, is, is really all about. Um, yes, they do want to stop the, the nuclear program. That is, uh, is a goal of the, uh, of the Obama administration. But it is not the only goal they have, and it's not the primary goal. The primary goal is to, uh, is to pull the United States back, uh, uh, back from the Middle East and to come up with a... Um, with a regional security architecture that will allow the United States to, st uh, 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 to stay out. And so these two goals have been working simultaneously all along, and at a certain point they run counter to each, uh, uh, counter to each other. Because in order to pull the U.S. back, they've got to, put the, they've got to reach an agreement on the nuclear, uh, on the nuclear program. And that's the, the, the Iranians picked up on that, and they recognized that getting the agreement was more important for the administration than anything else. 
and they realized that they could use it to their advantage, um, and they could come up with, um, uh, with the, the Iranians could offer solutions that were not really solutions that the administration would accept in the end. So you get this, I mean, it's the, to see the amount of creative intelligence that has gone into this on the part of the administration in order to present to us one, something that is really something else is startling. And the, the, the side deals is a great example. First of all, you, 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 you subcontract out some of the work to the IAEA so that you can say, well, nothing to do with me. Uh, I haven't seen those agreements, don't even know what's in them. Uh, it isn't part of some kind of secret uh, arrangement that I have with the Iranians. The other thing that they've done, which you can see if you read closely in the, um, in the, uh, the text of the agreement, is that they have sequenced the, uh, the, uh, the issues so that it looks like we're getting something that we're not actually getting. They, they, the, the, sequ- the, the sequencing in time is that the Iranians have to answer the IAEA's questions about the possible military dimensions of their program, and the IAEA will submit a report by December 15th, and it's only after that, the submitting of that report that, the, um, that we get implementation day for the, uh, for the agreement. That's the point at which the sanctions are, uh, the sanctions are, uh, um, are, are removed from the, the Iranians. That sequencing allows the administration to stand and say with a completely, complete sincerity, complete straight face, and total honesty that the, the lifting of the sanctions will not take place until after, the, uh, uh, until after the Iranians submit their answers to the IAEA. Totally true. What it doesn't tell you, though, is that it, it makes it sound like there's, a, like, there's a, uh, uh, like there's a conditionality applied here, that the Iranians have to answer questions that actually satisfy us about their, and, and, and actually satisfy the IAEA um, uh, uh, in some significant way that we now know about the possible military dimensions of their, uh, of their program. But that's not what's going to happen. The, the Iranians are going to submit answers. The IAEA is going to submit a report. And then the sanctions are, gonna be, are, are, are going to be removed, regardless of what the, uh, what the Iranians say and regardless of what the um, uh, of what the IAEA puts in its report. Now, both actors, the Iranians and the IAEA, recognize that, there is, that they will be putting the United States and the entire P5 plus 1, all of those European uh, uh, foreign ministers who have already been to Tehran with trade delegations and so on, will be completely discomfited if the IAEA says, you know what, the Iranians stiffed us again. So the Iranians will do their best to come as far toward the IAEA as they can without actually delivering anything that the IAEA really wants. And, and uh, Amano will be under enormous political pressure to, 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 to produce a report that will not embarrass the Americans and the, um, and the other P5 plus one partners. But even if he does, implementation day still goes forward. Because, because as, the, as the agreement is written, there is absolutely no, uh, uh, no conditionality. Um, and that, to me, that is what I say when I see it's reflective of the... Uh, re- reflective of the whole agreement. The President of the United States wants an agreement with Iran, and he wants an agreement with Iran for reasons that have to do with nuclear questions, but even more so for reasons that have to do with the whole position of the United States um, in, in the Middle East. And you can see this falling, you can see this uh, unfolding before your eyes right now with the Russians and the Iranians coordinating in an increase in their, uh, in their support for the Assad, their direct military support for the Assad regime. Uh, uh, this, is a, this, is a, this is the direct outcome of the strategic concept of the Americans of working together with the Russians and the Iranians to try to tamp down the worst pathologies um, uh, of the Middle East. 
And at some point, we should start debating that concept. The, the administration has not come clean that that is the strategic concept that it's working. The president has not come clean. When asked if he thinks that this agreement is going to lead to a greater flexibility of the Iranians in the, in the region, he says uh, the, the administration talks out of both sides of their mouth. Uh, they will say, well, we're hoping that that might happen, but that's not why. We're not trusting them. That's not, that's not why we're making the agreement. We, want, we think the agreement stands alone by itself. It is why they're doing it. They are doing it because it is part of this larger concept, and the larger concept is flawed. I'd love, uh, Lee, if, uh, if later on we could talk yeah. about why it's flawed, but it's flawed, and, it, and, and in the end, it won't work. No, this is great. I do want to come back to that. Right now, David had a, uh, and, and I was going to ask him to comment, even if he didn't volunteer a comment on what you were saying about the IAEA. So, David, if you... Yeah, I, I think it, my organization were split. I mean, some of <clears throat> think what Michael's saying is this, this is all a cynical exercise um, you know, and, and the argument is, look, it, Iran has modified Parchin. The I is very unlikely to find anything. I mean, what are we talking about in the end? I mean, I, I don't want to get too technical, but it's, you know, a test of a neutron initiator made out of uranium and deuteride. Um, it may have three grams, four grams of uranium in it that was then blown up, you know, 13 years ago or more. And, and Iran's had three years to eliminate any traces of that. And, and you see it all over the area that they've done cleanup. They know where it went. They know the weather patterns that day. They know, they know what they need to do. And, uh, and they've had experience at, at, at uh, cleanup um, in other sites. So they can, so the cynical version is they're not going to find anything. So who cares if this is a weak deal? Just get through this. Omano to plant his, the IA flag at Parchin and say we've gotten access. Um, you know, another side of my group wants, wants that, well, look, we, you know, at every step of this process, we want the IA to, to be doing the, the most rigorous verification possible. We want to make sure their credibility is strong. Uh, we want to make sure that if they go to Parchin and they say we didn't find any uranium, that they can say it's because of, you know, modification, and we believe that's true. And, uh, or maybe they'll find uranium. I mean, maybe they'll get lucky um, and they'll, they'll find uranium. But then you've got to attribute or assign, or what's the term, show that that uranium was related to an experiment related to nuclear weapons. And that's another problem I didn't get into. But that attribution is non-trivial. There's a lot of uranium in the world. And so um, you, you've got to detect it and attribute it properly. So you want them to be doing the most rigorous um, methods possible in order to gain credibility in their findings. And, I, and um, the other, other, and then what Michael's saying is, you know, well, this is a box checking exercise. Uh, the administration said you're not going to find, you know, we know they had a nuclear weapons program. We don't really care about the past. We care about the future. And, um, and that uh, let's just get through this and, and, and get the sanctions off. I know I've been briefed by White House officials who've said they do care. And, and, I, and, I, and I also realized we're a very technical organization, and we've dealt with technical people in, in various countries on this. We don't deal with the policy and the PR parts. And I know that by March, February, no, March, February, March, April of this year, that what I was being told in briefings by White House officials or, was different than what NGOs were being told by more senior White House officials. And I even complained about it, and the answer I got was, you just have to understand it's different. It's different. And, uh, 
But, I'm sorry, can you say like how it, how it was different? Well, I don't, I don't want to go into any examples per se, but it's, it's over, this would be an example. Well, let me use this. This would be an example where, where I'm told it, it does matter. If the, if the IA's concerns are not addressed, and we can talk about what that means, may not mean what you're thinking, that sanctions would not come off. But listen to Secretary of State Kerry. You know, others are so told, and you hear him say, what happened in the past doesn't matter. Hmm. Is that my phone? Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought I turned it off. Um, the, um, so I think I it is. not Secretary Kerry. Yeah. <laughs> so the, but the bottom uh, line, yeah, that's right. But the bottom line is, is that, is that we don't know. And in fact, the, when I when I commented on this dis difference in the briefings, my you know, my reaction was, look, the people who are briefing these NGOs, and I think they're they're really spinning them. I mean, I'm kind of disturbed by how the the arms control community has bought into a lot of stuff in, in, to win this fight that is compromising their, I believe, their integrity. And and that and that, um, but the bottom line is is that the people who are higher are spinning, where the technical scientific people are lower, and I believe they're not. But who's going to control the decision on implementation day? Well, do you? Do you I'm and that's sure. really the issue: is that there's no meeting scheduled among the P five plus one to sit down and say, you know, they've addressed the IA concerns. It'll be up to what happens in the U.S government mind on implementation day to make a decision whether this condition would stop the, I'm ready the lifting to, of sanctions. I'm ready to predict right now what's going to happen <laughs> on implementation I'm day. not. And uh, I, let me just add, I mean, we are, I mean, we approach this very differently. He, you use an example of Fox or, you know, whatever. What was Hedgehog. It? Hedgehog. We see it very differently. We see that scientists in Washington are constantly confronted with the, the, the reality of if you're going to make a mistake, do it right. And that, and that what happens is that we see our role as we see problems and that we also want an integrity to the process. We do want it more transparent, of course, but we want an integrity to the, to the process that the work is done um, rigorously and, and, and that it can withstand review. And, and so I think that that motivates our, our work to a great extent. And, that, and that's also why we're neutral because we want to be able to look at the strengths and value those, and we want to look at the weaknesses and just get into it without thinking or hearing a voice in our ear, oh, my God, you support the deal. You better not say that. And I can tell you we get beat up all the time because, you know, left-wing groups use our work, or I guess right now the, the, in this de debate, I mean, we've, we've, we've had these fights before on, on the aluminum tubes in Iraq. I mean, August, September 2002, our work saying, questioning the aluminum tubes use in centrifuges was certainly not appreciated by, by the right wing. And, and we took a lot of abuse for those positions. On the Syrian reactor, uh, we thought the site bombed by Israel was a reactor, and many in the left attacked us uh, and went after us for that. And, and in, we see this case today on, our, on the Iran deal, this, particularly this summer, where the left, I think, is attacking us, um, and, and it's in the similar vein. Where they're and they're defending things that really shouldn't be defended. This deal has problems that have to be faced, and and I think the IA is one of them that you need to find a way. And this is where maybe I am not as pessimistic as you, and and maybe I mean it's just optimistic. The IA has to find a way to strengthen what it's doing 
over the next several months. You're not going to change this IA Parchim deal or IA Iran Parchim deal. It's in place. But they can, they can try to make the best of it. They can then try to get access to other sites. They can, they can do a rigorous job on the verification of, of, the, of the possible military dimensions issue and, and try to uh, come out of this with the strongest report possible in December and that they can withstand um, uh, criticism. Only I think you wanted to follow yeah. up, Mike. This, this issue of uh, what the White House was telling, uh, you know, there are g most of the think tanks in the city have attempted to work with the administration in order to point out flaws over the previous two years and so on, fix them. That's happened both on the nuclear side, the stuff that David works on, but also uh, in the context of the sanctions regime and so on. Uh, and there really was, the dynamic really did develop where the White House would be telling its validators, these NGOs, one thing, and would be telling these experts that were trying to contribute a different thing. So experts would show up with concerns like PMDs, with concerns like, you know, the Iranians are, will push back against inspections, with concerns like, what are you doing allowing the Iranians to produce heavy water reactors out of, uh, after 15 years out of the Lausanne Agreement? Uh, and they would be told, and the experts would be told one thing, and then the NGOs would be spun up and told something different. I'm sorry, I, mean, I just want to check, because just to make sure what David was saying, that the experts were being told something by lower-level officials who were also themselves scientific or technical experts. Lar but largely, but not always. Okay, all right. But, but the NGO people were being, yeah. as, as David was saying, uh, more senior officials. And, and as David was, was saying... Politically invested One... Perhaps the, one of the uh, gentlest things could be said were being spun up. But one, then, toward the end, especially the final days of Vienna and especially after Vienna, something, something very distressing began to happen, which is that all of the excuses that were being provided to the White House validators, to these NGOs, to go out and then validate, were uh, actual concessions that got built into the agreement. And so we do know on which side the actual text falls. So on one side, when it comes to things like PMDs, the possible military dimensions of Iran's past nuclear work, uh, you know, experts were being told, of course these matters, we need them to baseline the program, we don't know how far the Iranians got. There are all kinds of technical details, like it's important to know what kind of bomb design they were working on, because that comes, goes into calculations of how much uranium they need in order to produce that bomb, which is the breakout calculation. So there are all kinds of experts saying, of course we need to resolve these PMDs. And then there was the spin that was, uh, it crystallized in Secretary <coughs> Kerry's statement to uh, a teleconference to a State Department journalist, which is, we have absolute knowledge of Iran's past nuclear work and we don't need the Iranians to tell us what they did. Uh, one was spin, and, and by the way, he was roundly, roundly criticized for that, and the State Department spent the next week walking back that statement. And yet, that is the reading that was transmitted to Congress. We know that among the documents that were submitted to Congress, pursuant to its Corker card and obligations, there were two documents that dealt with the PMDs issue, at least two. One of those documents said, uh, we've come to the conclusion that we, it's, un, it's unrealistic and unnecessary to force Iran to come clean on its past nuclear work because the U.S. intelligence community has judged that it has sufficient knowledge to detect an Iranian breakout and to enforce the deal without having the Iranians come clean. And then it said, for an explanation why, please see subsequent classified annex. So that's the first thing that, uh, I believe it was the Wall Street Journal that reported the existence of those two documents. Bloomberg View, 
subsequently reported on the contents of that other document, the one that purports to explain why it is that the IC judges that it doesn't need Iran to come clean on its past nuclear work. And it turns out that that assessment is premised, without exaggeration, without hyperbole, it's premised on near total Iranian cooperation with inspectors over the lifetime of the deal. Right? In a very precise way, trusts the Iranians. So when we talk about this very, very frustrating process that occurred as the JCPOA was coming together, where experts were being told one thing and White House validators were being told another, one of the distressing things is that by the end, the spin had become the U.S.'s position. That the expert view that we do indeed need Iran to resolve its past military, to come clean on its past military, on the past military nature of its nuclear work, was abandoned in favor of this spin that we know enough about what happened in the past and all that matters is the future. Thanks. Mike, I think you wanted to uh, respond as... I just wanted to say that, uh, that the, the picture that uh, David um, presented of um, uh, lower-level technical experts being committed to their job um, and, um, and thinking the best of all this, um, um, in contrast to... Or, and, and, and not being influenced by political considerations... Um, and higher-level officials having a, a different view is built into the, into the DNA of the, of the Obama administration. Of course, it exists in any administration um, to a certain extent, but it's really heightened in the case of the Obama administration. And I think everybody now recognizes this. Um, uh, for a while, it was only, I think, critics of the administration who said this, and now I think everyone can see it. Um, there is the president and four or five uh, uh, close people around him uh, and then there is, and then there is everybody else, and the um, the president and his closest advisors are often not sharing with the everybody else um, some of their uh, some of their greatest concerns and calculations. And we saw it just in the last couple of days. There's a fascinating article in uh, Bloomberg by Josh Rogan uh, about the um, the Russian move, the Russian military move um, in Syria. And the first reaction of the State Department when this happened was to go to the Russians and the Bulgarians. Uh, and to protest um, them giving the Russians the uh, uh, overflight and staging, uh, and staging uh, rights um, for, the, for the Russians to supply um, their forces in, uh, in Syria. But uh, according to Rogan, the president was very unhappy with this because the State Department had run out and done this without consulting him. So I, 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 my takeaway from that... Uh, is that the president has one view about the, uh, the relative advantages and disadvantages of what the Russians are doing, and the State Department has another. Uh, and the president hasn't shared his thinking about the, um, the value of the, uh, of the Russian and Iranian actions in Syria um, with, the, with the State Department. And he's not going to do it. He's not going to do it because, precisely what uh, Omri explained to us, uh, is that the American public does not, trust the, uh, does not trust the Iranians, and a U.S. strategy that is based on coordinating with the Iranians is going to be politically illegitimate. Mike, let me, let me uh, ask you, I mean, you, were, you, know, you worked in the, uh, in the Bush White House, and we understand that this is a fairly, it's not an unusual phenomenon, the idea that a White House and State Department don't necessarily see eye to eye. <laughs> These are different bureaucracies uh, with different ideas. White House is political... Uh, political appointees in State Department, you have uh, it's a permanent bureaucracy. H- how is this different? It's different in that it's different in that the um, um, uh, both. So sorry, just to, just to connect up the dots, you know. Mm-hmm. So that's how you get 
to what David was saying before. You get you get actual technical experts who um, who are are presenting what the administration is doing with respect to uh, on the basis of uh, uh, technical considerations and the traditional nonproliferation concerns that the U.S. Uh, uh, the U.S. government has. When those when those nonproliferation concerns are not what's actually motivating the government at the top, the difference is um, is this. You know, I, I talked to a high level Obama official, and uh, this is about a year ago, and I put to him uh, the uh, my my thesis that the United States is aligning with with Iran, um, and I pointed to a number of different examples where I saw that happening on the ground in Iraq, in Syria, in Lebanon. Uh, and so on. And he said, uh, you've got it totally wrong, Mike. Um, the thing about Barack Obama is that he approaches the region like a lawyer. Uh, each, each problem in the region is a separate file. So there's an a, a nuclear, Iranian nuclear file, there's an Iraq uh, file, there's a Syria file, there's a Palestinian file, and so on and so forth. And he um, adamantly refuses, he, he, he treats each case on a case-by-case basis, and he adamantly refuses to make a connection between the different cases, all right? Uh, and I, I look at that. That's what it looks like if you're a high-level official in the Obama administration dealing with the president. The New York Times uh, famously uh, described um, the president in a meeting about Syria where he was thumbing through his BlackBerry, uh, um, uh, reading, distracted, while this discussion about whether, to, whether the United States should arm the opposition was going on uh, or not. Um, uh, my, my view on my view on that is that the president had, in fact, connected up all of the dots. Uh, he just wasn't sharing the connections that he had made with his uh, with his uh, uh, officials. He was allowing meetings like this one in the NSC about Syria to go on, allowing the bureaucracy to do, to, uh, to to do its thing to keep everybody busy because he knew what the most the, the single most important thing was what he sent in a letter, according to the Wall Street Journal, to Ali Khamenei. Don't worry, Mr. Supreme Leader. The United States will not, will not do anything on the ground in Syria to harm Bashar al-Assad. Right? This is the guarantee that he gave to, to Khamenei. And if you look now, for, for, for a couple of years, we have been arming and training the Syrian opposition. In the last year, we spent $500 million on arming and training the, op- the, the Syrian opposition. And we produced, what, 54 soldiers. 54 soldiers um, who have signed, uh, actually signed a declaration saying that they won't do anything to harm Assad. Nowhere has President Obama gone out in public and said, I'm not going to do anything to harm uh, uh, Assad because I made this promise to Ali Khamenei because I don't want to do anything to, to, uh, to uh, throw a wrench in the works of the Iran deal or because I want to coordinate with Iran in, in, in the region. He hasn't said that uh, publicly, and he hasn't told that to his officials in the Syria meeting where everything is going around. He let that meeting go around, 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 and then finally, when the uh, uh, when the uh, when the National Security Council, the, the the major members of the National Security Council said we should arm the opposition, he said, "No, I uh, I don't want to do it." So he ate up months and months and months of uh, of, of government time debating this issue, and then uh, and then nixed it, and that's what's happened time and time uh, again. And all, all, all that matters in the end is what we do or don't do to stop Iran on the ground in, in, in these areas. And as long as he is comfortable knowing that we can make sure that we don't do anything to stop them, he gets what he wants without ever declaring what it is. Um, David, I was going to ask you a question unless you wanted to say something. Just wanted to change, um, just wanted to change tracks a little bit. Um, 
does the Parchin deal, um, does the Parchin side deal, secret side deal, does this hurt the IAEA? I mean, I don't think the administration is necessarily looking to hurt the, uh, the organization, but do you think it does? Well, the short answer is I'm worried it does, but I, I think there needs to be some background. The, I, the United States has tremendous influence with the IAEA, but it doesn't pull its strings. And, and, it, and kind of as a background, if, I don't know if you remember in the press, there was discussion that the negotiators were going to um, put in a, create a list of sites and people that the IA would get access to, and that, and that that was going to be kind of, the reporting was that it was going to be hardwired into the deal. Um, they went to the IA and they said, look, we have our own list. In essence, kind of <coughs> pushing back. And, and I don't think the negotiators really knew what to do. And so I would think that this Iran-IA deal was not done with the approval of the United States. Again, this is a, a, you know, just my own experience that I don't think they would have said, go do this. They have been pretty clear in, in meetings I've had, they want access to Parchin. They don't, some of them don't think anything will be found. I'm sorry, I just want to be clear. The U.S. does or the IAEA does? The U.S. wants access okay. to Parchin. The, the IAEA okay. to have access to Parchin. Okay. They want a, ha, the IAEA to have access to other sites mm -hmm. that, that are associated with, uh, uh, if I can use the acronym, the PMD. Um, right. and, that, and, and the reason is simple, that the, the Iran can't create precedents that sites in Iran are off limits. The safeguards right. agreements do not distinguish between military and civilian sites. Under the traditional safeguards <coughs> agreement, the IA can go where it needs to go, and, and there's no such distinction. It can ask to go to a military site. I mean, a, the IA could have called for a special inspection at Parchin. It chose not to do that. The board wouldn't have said, oh, you can't do that because it's a military site. They the, never would have done that. So, so you, the United States has strongly wanted to have the precedent set that the Iran can't deny access. But, they want a deal, and and it's right. and and it so this gets into a very complicated debate. So, how is the U.S. going to react? I mean, I think part of the problem I've seen from again from Europe is that I think both sides are so distorting the facts. I mean, I, let me be honest that it, it's hard to have an honest debate uh, and an objective debate about this. I mean, I can you know we live on the left. I mean, that's where we are. I mean, I'll admit it. My group wants nuclear disarmament. We just, and we see Iran and North Korea as the front line of efforts to get nuclear disarmament, not wrestling with U.S. nuclear weapons stockpile size. So we're deeply committed to these causes traditionally associated with the left. And, and we're deeply disturbed by how the, the left has, has bought into positions and says things that don't even, aren't even consistent with their own views. Secrecy at the IA, it's traditionally a left view. IA needs to be more open. Large centrifuge programs, million, you know, mm. you know, hundreds of thousands of, of centrifuges in Iran in 15 to 20 years. I mean, most of them are anti-nuclear power, or at least don't buy into large, sensitive enrichment mm. programs in dangerous regions mm. of the world, and yet they did and have. So I think there is a need to pull back from this kind of polarization to have a more honest discussion. And in that, I would say that the implementation of this deal does matter and that the United States and, and others, the public, should be pushing that the IA do a rigorous job. They recover from this Iran-IA, Iran, or this Parchin deal, 
and that they and that they push hard to get access to bolster their credibility and and make sure with the support of the member states that they march into this you know post implementation day agreement as strong as possible and then i would say what do we do you know this is a town that you know, works with congress i would hope that congress does create legislation that puts in conditions um, to make sure that the, the deal is implemented better. I mean, we've proposed one. I don't, again, I don't know. We don't lobby. We don't follow all the politics of it. And it seems very chaotic right now um, that, that Congress would pass a law that said sanction, U.S. sanctions, and again, it'd be U.S. sanctions, wouldn't be removed unless Iran uh, addresses the IA's uh, PMD concerns. That, you could have one on, on another issue. You could have policy of the United States that we don't accept Iran building an unnecessary, um, uneconomical, large, and I emphasize large, they can have some, large centrifuge program after year fifth or after year 13 is when it starts to happen <coughs> in a dangerous region of the world. It's just our policy to oppose that. doesn't mean you renegotiate the deal, but you just say, look, we're, we're going to oppose that. What does that mean practically? Well, a country sells a nuclear power plant to Iran, and China's talking about it now. I'm sure Russia has been. You say, look, all the fuel has to be provided for that reactor for the lifetime of the reactor. You eliminate any motivation for Iran to produce the enriched uranium, or even have an argument to produce the enriched uranium for those reactors. It, it, it's going to be hard enough to get a program large enough, but you can simply say that a condition of supply is that the all the fuels provided for that reactor would not be provided indigenously. Iran wants reactors, it'll sign that deal. And I could give other examples where you can, you can actually create policies or actions now that can, in, in a sense, mitigate the weaknesses of this deal. Hmm. Um, Omri, did you want to follow up? I mean, I mean, among other things, I would sort of like to ask you to, um, politically speaking, what are the mechanisms that that you can, that you think have led to, I, I just want to go through one more rant and then open up to a question or two, but what are the political mechanisms or exigencies that have led to this moment where we wound up with the, where we wound up with this agreement, uh, Parcher and the Secret Side deal, and how do we avoid it in the future? How do we? Sure, w one of the hallmarks <laughs> of this debate is that, you know, this. It's a more specific version of uh, what Mike was talking about, which is this has not been a, uh, and I suppose a more specific version of uh, what David's talking about, this has not been a clean public debate. This has not been a debate. A lot of this debate has occurred with not just different claims being made, but claims that were uh, either in one way or another not, uh, not binding. You know, the usual way, that Paul, at the risk of oversimplification, the usual way policy proceeds is policymakers lay out their goals. They articulate why they believe uh, that a particular policy has more benefits than costs, and then they defend them. But we've gone through a two-year process where the administration repeatedly told lawmakers, please back off. If you give us breathing room, we will do things like, uh, of course, the Iranians will be forced to come clean under Secretary Sherman every time she went to the Hill, emphasized that, of course, inspectors will have to get access to Parchin. Uh, State Department, I think, then spokeswoman Marie Harf once uh, sarcastically brushed off a reporter who asked about that and said, I think 
I think we would find it very hard to, ex to accept an agreement where inspectors didn't have access to Parchin. We would shutter Fordo. We would get them to dismantle centrifuges. And then as those commitments began to fall by the wayside, a number of things happened. Uh, the main one was this claim that often was done unblinkingly of, well, we never said that in the first place. Of course, this, this got to the level of absurdity with the Anytime Anywhere inspections where Secretary Kerry said, nobody ever mentioned Anytime Anywhere to me. And people said, Secretary Moniz, who was sitting next to you, mentioned right. that. That happened in interviews, happened during testimony. And so we haven't had the usual way that public deliberation proceeds, which is on the basis of, doesn't have, listen, nobody's asking, and it will never be achieved in actually existing democracies. Nobody's asking for absolute facts, absolute honesty. Everybody comes to the table as a computer. Mm -hmm. But the idea that there's no accountability for past commitments, uh, commitments made to lawmakers, commitments uh, articulated to journalists, commitments developed in public, is a very strange thing, even if you don't assume the Durant thesis that there is actually a grand strategy being pursued that involves, if not full-blown realignment, then at least entente with Iran. Uh, even if you don't accept that, from the outside looking in, it's just a very strange debate. But there is reason to believe that that's being pursued. You know, it's not just the right, it's not just opponents of the deal who have said that what's effectively being negotiated is an entente with Iran. Uh, the policy chief, I think he's the policy chief, at, the, uh, at NIAC, the pro-Iran lobby here in town, wrote an article about a month ago that said that Israel will find itself completely internationally isolated, in as many words, unless it accepts U.S.-Iran entente as foreseen by the deal. And so it's a very, very strange debate. And the answer to your question, and this, you know, this is the side deals debate in a macrocosm, the answer is there needs to be more transparency. You know, the Corker-Cardin legislation was designed to allow a more robust public debate, having facts in hand about what the deal actually does, which is one of the reasons why this side deals issue and why more, a little more broadly the PMD issue is, has legs both politically and in a policy sense and in a public affairs sense. And it's because, you know, just to take these documents that were submitted, Congress asked the president to submit documents <coughs> outlining what actually is in the deal so they could have this debate in public. The documents that were submitted, we now know, were either, in some cases, full-blown, class fully classified. So, again, the PMDs issue, right, which was kind of, people rolled their eyes when this came out. A kind of non-public document that says, the administration has concluded we don't need Iran to come clean, and then it says, and for the reason why, see the classified document that's also attached. It made, a, it made a mockery of that requirement. But we also know more broadly that those documents, and I believe it was uh, the Daily Beast that reported this, the administration appears to have gone out of its way to mix classified with non-classified material into each of the documents they submitted in turn in order to prevent them from being disclosed publicly. And that undercuts the ability to have a debate. And again, why do you overclassify something? You overclassify something accidentally, or you overclassify it because of institutional needs, or you overclassify it because risk rewards indicate you should classify rather than declassify. But a lot of the reasons you classify something is to prevent embarrassment. And that appears to have occurred a lot during this debate. Mike, would you like to, uh, and then I think I am going to open it up for a, a question or two, but if you would like to uh, summarize, as it were, 
Uh, I'll just say that um, with respect to what Omri just said, uh, I, um, I too have been disturbed by the way that the administration has presented things um, uh, on Monday in a way that it completely contradicted on Tuesday and then nobody is troubled by it. But I, I would also add that this has played out and this has played out from the moment the um, the interim deal was signed in November of 2013. Um, I, I think that the the final agreement that we got was pretty well prefigured in the in the interim agreement. Um, and you could you the interim agreement gave the it, it gave the Iranians the right to enrich. Of course, that phrase was not in the agreement, but it, but it, it it effectively gave them. Um, the right to enrich, and it and it um, and it also gave them the sunset clause that this is going to only be a temporary restriction on the uh, on the program, um, and at the same time, while the negotiation while the agreement was being negotiated, we saw greater and greater coordination between the United States and the Iranians on the ground in the Middle East to the point where we had Shiite militias armed, trained, equipped, and effectively led by the Iranians on the ground in Iraq enjoying air, uh, the air cover of the United States Air Force. And, and that, and, and uh, uh, so the public has been informed. Right. Uh, and um, what's surprising to me is the number of people who have, um, uh, uh, who have seen this clearly and have pretended not to. I, and I, I, I can't completely explain well, why I, I, that is. Well, I was just going to say, I think that a lot of people have seen it clearly. I think if we saw some of the statements coming out, some of the, especially some of the Democratic senators who came out in support of the uh, of the JCPOA, Senator Booker comes immediately to mind. Senator Coons as well expressed certain reservations. If you look at a lot of people coming out and be uh, in favor of the deal, I mean, it's really like esoteric writing. They're yeah. describing why they're actually why the deal is deeply problematic, and nonetheless they say I'm supporting it. So it seems that some people do actually recognize it, but they're they a recognize of other it. They recognize it part. Out. I mean, the the way the administration has. Um, helped those people emotionally get over their qualms is by its its uh, uh, its latest uh, talking point, which is that we're going to push back against the Iranians after the deal, and the deal is going to help us do that in the region, and the deal is going to help us do this. Pushback is the new right. We'll make the military new, force easier. Is the new is now? This is a good thing. is a new slogan. So on the one hand, we have this picture of a deal that is going to strengthen Iran economically, militarily, and diplomatically, and it's going to do so immediately. And you can see that happening before your eyes with the trade delegations from Europe going to Tehran, with the Russians and their Iranians coordinating in, uh, in, in Syria, with the Russians re- uh, releasing the, um, the S-300 anti-aircraft missile, and so on and so forth. You can see it all right happening before your eyes. Um, and so the administration is saying, yes, we're strengthening Iran, but we're going to push back. But but we're going to push back mm-hmm. against it. Now, do you? If you really believe that, then go ahead and and, and and support this deal. But this is this is simply not going to happen. We're not going to push back, and it's not going to make pushback easier. Uh, actually, Omri and then David. So I'd actually this this pushback talking point is something that is that plays out through a number of themes that we've discussed today. But the most readily, the most obvious one, is this idea that the administration consistently said whatever it had to say. To get through news cycles, or to get through con, or to get through testimony, until facts on the ground made it untenable. So in September 2013, we were going to end Iran's nuclear program, force them to give up heavy water work, and roll back their ballistic missile program, while forcing them to come clean. That was Secretary Sherman's uh, explicit testimony. Uh, by 2014, some of that had changed. 
but we were still going to, but by then we were going to have a verification regime that was going to be the world's toughest and had any time anywhere inspections. Uh, and these progressively, as the Iranians simply said, no, we continued to give up until our goal became a one-year breakout, no Iranian coming clean, no, no coming clean by the Iranians. Uh, the idea that the IC has sufficient knowledge to know, to check, a, to detect an effort to break out and so on. The fear among uh, skeptics of this deal and critics of this deal is that the pushback argument, this administration promise to A, push back, work with our allies to push Iran back militarily, and B, uh, double down on sanctions enforcement, will become another such promise, which is to say it'll take its place alongside the shattering of Fordo, the P resolution of PMDs, the dismantlement of centrifuges, <coughs> as a promise the administration made to get Congress to back off for long enough to create new facts on the ground. And the concern is that we're already seeing that. So at the same time that the administration is saying that it intends to double down on sanctions enforcement, <coughs> we see uh, IRGC, Quds Force leaders, Qasem Soleimani specifically, who are under travel bans, traveling to Russia. And the Fox News got a scoop. They disclosed literally, literally, the flight number and the flight times of the plane that Qasem Soleimani had taken to Moscow in violation of the international travel ban on him. And the administration, when asked for several days, said, we just don't know. It was a caricature of looking the other way. As they were on the hill, without hyperbole, literally, as they were on the hill, saying we will double down on sanctions enforcement in order to provide uh, what Mike described, the emotional buttressing to those who are concerned about Iranian expansionism. And after this, there's nothing left, right? The reason why they've had to make these commitments to Congress the latest being the pushback and double down argument is because Congress has been in a position to jam up what is a bad deal, what they, what if lawmakers believe that the deal is bad, and of course bipartisan majorities in both chambers do believe it's bad. Once that's over, there there won't be another commitment of this sort because the administration won't have to do it. And the fear is that yet again there will be no accountability when <laughs> instead of pushing back, we end up, for instance ceding Syria to Iranian and Russian coordination. David? Yeah, I, I can't speak to those issues. Um, okay. I, I, I would just caution, though, that um, there's a lot of positive things in this agreement. And, and, um, um, and, and sure, the duration is, is not one of them. I mean, I, I, based on my experience in Europe, our allies were not particularly happy with that. Um, that at 10 years compared to what was sought of more in the 20 to 30 year range, that was the original uh, goal, is just not enough. But it's not an, it's not an easy negotiation. This is, it's an agreement that's very long, has lots of moving parts, and, and, and decisions were made in the negotiation. And it wasn't made, I don't think it was made by Obama. I think it was made by competent negotiators that they, they would win, try to win on this or insist on winning on that they would give on that. And so I think it, it's an imperfect deal, and that, and that um, but it is the deal, and, and it's going to have to be implemented. And I, I would argue that there's a need to try to fix these weaknesses rather than draw party lines right. and continue this battle indefinitely. And I think Israel will be shooting itself in the foot if it doesn't start contributing very actively to trying to strengthen this deal. And I think it can be done. I think there's support around the world 
I mean, on the, on the, you know, I don't know how many of you have read about the procurement channel. I mean, it's a key part of this agreement, both on the verification side and on the, and then trying to um, enforce bans on Iran getting arms and missile imports. It still has to be created. The meetings, there'll be meet, important meetings uh, uh, alongside this uh, General Assembly among the, the stakeholders. Do you think that's one place where well, I think there's many. I think there's, allies could yeah, I think there's many them. places. The IEA thing is very important. There was never an intention to get the Iran to confess. I mean, it should, but it doesn't seem that it, and, and my understanding from negotiators, it's not a question of the supreme leader you know, oh my God, I said we never have nuclear weapons. It's really a question of who gets blamed for sanctions. The Iranian narrative blames the West for all the suffering they've gone through on sanctions. If they said, yeah, we did have a nuclear weapons program, guess what the Iranian domestic audience is going to conclude? No, it was our fault, or more likely, the regime's fault. And so, so that issue cannot be settled until there's some resolution on the sanctions. So... I'm sorry, what issue cannot be? That, that Iran would come clean. It can't admit politically, and it has nothing to do with the fatwa. It has everything right. to do with who's, who gets blamed for sanctions um, in Iran and, 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 and in the NAM. So I think the, the idea of the IA effort is not to get Iran to come clean. It's to say, we think this is what's happened, and that it did this and that. It didn't get there, and it did get you know, accomplish that mm -hmm. goal, to know the people, to know the sites, and then to make a determination. And the determination may just be Ron had a nuclear weapons program. I mean, that may be all that takes place. Mm -hmm. And if they have access, um, have had access, so they're not, their credibility isn't undermined, that may be the, I would argue, the sufficient outcome of, of this whole issue. So, again, it's, I think that it's very important to, to try to find um, ways to strengthen this deal and to get beyond some of this fight and not, and not make it a, what I fear is going to be a guerrilla warfare, um, particularly in the House, to undermine the deal. And I, I went through the agreed framework in the 90s. We were a reluctant supporter. We actually didn't stay neutral. We supported the deal despite the IA being thrown under the bus. And uh, same arguments, oh, there'll be war, you know, you can't let the IA do their job, you know, we'll, 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 you know, it'll cause Seoul to be incinerated. So they made a deal, we reluctantly went along, but the Congress didn't. And, and so every time you needed money, it was a nightmare. And here, you can envision, Lindsey Graham has already said it, we might hold up money for the IA. You know, you know it's again, shooting yourself in the head, but if you're just trying to kill the deal, it's not a crazy strategy. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, real efforts have to be made to try to shift the debate to one of how do you strengthen this, even though many don't like it. And, uh, and, and I would argue that many of the people, the discussions in Europe are very different. Mm. I mean, it's, you know, it's really different. I mean, there's not a, uh, you know, you don't have this Congress to deal with. Um, but there's much more willingness to look at the pluses and minuses and uh, move on. And no one is sitting there saying this is some perfect deal. Not anyone I've talked to. Mike, did you want to? They may say oh, that sorry. here. I mean, yeah. I would. what they say here, I heard, is very different than what they may say there. So I, let me put that on there. Out there. <laughs>
Michael. In the spirit of bipartisan compromise, I'll just say that <laughs> I, I'm, I'm in favor of giving the IAEA the money it needs to do its job. <laughs> just want to stake that out. You, yeah. I'll go out on that limb. Okay. Did you have anything else you wanted to do on it? Um, okay, so let's. I think we do have time. We start a little late. Let's take uh, one or two questions. Let's see the gentleman uh, all the way in the back. If you can wait, I think we have a microphone circulating. So if you can just wait one moment. Yes. Uh, my name is Adam Yeff, and I'm a master's student at George Washington University. Mm -hmm. uh, Mr. Casper, you were discussing uh, the kind of if-then statement for congressional Republicans and the trust between, uh, between Congress and the administration and the trust between them. Uh, but hasn't the Congress repeatedly tried to undermine the deal throughout the process and not given all the breathing room that was possible? And hasn't that affected the administration's trust of Congress? Uh, and the two-way relationship has become more difficult through both sides, I'd like to know your uh, kind of going forward how Congress, Congress in general can uh, strengthen the deal, what your opinions would be since it seems to be going forward. Thank you. Sure. Oh, Omri, you want to? Yeah. Okay. Sure. Uh, the, the theory that, you know, this started off as, as a relationship of trust and then descended into distrust is a difficult one to sustain, if only because we know now and in fact, recordings of these meetings have leaked and been posted online, that as early as January 2014, uh, in, this particular, in the case of this particular meeting, uh, Deputy National Security Advisor Ben Rhodes was taking meetings with validators, with NGOs, to discuss how to ice Congress out of the process. Specifically, the phrase, I think, on that, from that meeting was to create a structure that, uh, would, that would circumvent Congress. Uh, whether or not that was justified, whether or not, you know, Secretary Kerry has said the reason they didn't pursue a treaty is because they knew they couldn't get two-thirds, which is a fairly strange admission to make in those, in those terms, but nonetheless, it's one that they made. Uh, I think that at various times, Congress was less cooperative, at various times, more cooperative, but there has been an enormous appetite in Congress for the last two years to pass non-nuclear sanctions which are explicitly permitted under both the JPOA and the JCPOA. And they were told, in as many words, well, I can't use that word on camera. They were told, please don't mess this up for us. Uh, of course, you're allowed to do it, but please don't. And Congress didn't. And Republican Congresses and Democratic Congresses, Republican Houses and Democratic, and, uh, Democratic Houses, uh, Senates, did not. And so I think that Congress has provided an enormous amount of breathing room over the better instincts of many of its members. And for instance, I believe it was Senator Booker, but one of the Democratic senators who recently came out in support of the JCPOA or technically against a resolution of disapproval said, if I could go back, I think we made a, potentially made a mistake by not pursuing new sanctions legislation. He was specifically, I think, referencing uh, the, April, the spring push on Kirk Menendez. Uh, Moving forward, Congress will have to do, uh, Congress will take two tracks. There will be efforts to kill the deal. There will be efforts to strengthen the deal. But one of the things you're going to see is an effort to work with the administration to make good on the administration's pledge to double down on non-nuclear sanctions. And if it does turn out that the pledge for non-nuclear sanctions was another one of these commitments that were made just to get out of the news cycle, then I think you'll see irreparable harm to the uh, inter to interbranch relations. Mm. Um, did you want to say anything, or are you okay? Mm -hmm. uh, let's take one more. 
Um, this gentleman right here on the, or on my left. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, Scott Edelman, uh, recently retired State Department officer. Uh, one In the last week or so, one of the new aspects of SPIN has been uh, that the agreement um, allows for some limited continuing research on uh, uranium and uh, its, its properties, but that it stops any research on plutonium, and that if you really want a bomb, what you really want is plutonium. I wonder if you could comment on that bit of SPIN. Yeah, th there was a New York Times piece about the Iraq reactor. I, I think it, it broad, I, I like broad and respect his work. I mean, they left out a key thing, which is the processing or the plutonium separation. And, and so the Iraq deal, the Iraq reactor has always been secondary to enrichment. And, and part of the, the main reason is, is that it wasn't done. Um, it's turned out it wasn't close to being operational. They had a, uh, and, that, and that Iran had said that it didn't intend to build a plant to separate the plutonium produced in the reactor. And, and so it wasn't equivalent. I mean, Natanz Fordow gives Iran the ability to make weapon-grade uranium that could then be used in a bomb. Iraq gets, when finished, would get Iran the ability to have plutonium and spent fuel. It has put lots of plutonium and spent Bouchier reactor fuel, too. And so they needed a reprocessing plant. And yes, we think Iran was working on that years ago, but it stopped. And so it's really, the uranium, enriched uranium part has always gotten the priority, and the administration pursued that, as you probably know, much harder than the Iraq reactor um, part. Everyone's happy with the limitations on the rea Iraq reactor, for sure. But the story, I think, oversimplified and even, even kind of misrepresented uh, what was happening. But I do want to point out that in this deal, there, Iran has committed not to do research on uranium and plutonium metallurgy. Most, I don't know anyone who's made a bomb using uranium oxide, HEU oxide. I mean, they use metal. Um, and so Iran is committed not to do that research indefinitely, along with several other nuclear weaponization activities. Um, and so uh, that, that was seen as a very positive achievement in this. And I think it, I, I don't know who originated it. Certainly I know the French were, were big proponents of it. Um, and so I, I think that's an important achievement. It's also another why, reason why you want Parchin to go right. Um, that's all, that experiment is related to a development of a nuclear weapons component. It's very small scale, very hard to find, and you want the IE to be able to go places quickly without challenge in order to verify that those kind of activities aren't taking place. And in the and in the final agreement, it's going to be these nuclear weaponization activities that are banned that the IA is going to have to verify, and they're very, very difficult to verify. If you can't get to the military sites, you can't verif verify that part of the, of the agreement at all. David, thank you very much. I think that is going to um, bring our panel to a close. I want to thank um, especially David Albright, Omri Sarah, and Michael Duran. And I want to thank our C-SPAN audience. And most of all, I want to thank you for showing up this afternoon. Thank you very much and see you soon.